Well, this morning, I want to look at the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's become known as Palm Sunday. This would be the beginning of his final week on earth. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? Can you imagine the the feelings that bubbled up to the surface? Knowing that his time is short. And you know, end times are important times. And so you only do the things that are absolutely the most important to you in life at the end of life. Think about all the events we can read about in the Bible that final week. It was full of significance for every one of us here today. We're not just looking back through history at a story. But this affects us today. The events of that first week are significant for us still today. And it was full of activities. We can read about Jesus cleansing the temple, walking into the church, and being outraged at what they'd turned it into. Not a place of grace like we just sang about, but a place of profit and cheating. We can read about the Lord's Supper there in the upper room as he spends the last few hours on earth with the closest friends on earth that he had. We can learn from the important lessons of the parables he taught us about the fig tree, the ten virgins, and the talents, and all the the ramifications that are wrapped up into those stories, those parables. Jesus taught during that final week about the signs of the end times, what it's going to look like when the eastern sky splits apart. And he's not coming through into Jerusalem physically, he's coming from heaven. And he talked about the end times and what to look for and what to watch for, and he mentioned then that he was going to separate those Christ followers from the people who don't know God or don't love God or don't honor God. That final week included Gethsemane's agonizing prayer, Judas's betrayal, Jesus's arrest, Peter's denial. It was action-packed, full of events. We find in his final days, Jesus being questioned by Pilate, mocked by the soldiers. We find his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. One week after Palm Sunday, Jesus crossed the finish line of his earthly ministry, concluding three years of teaching and healing and blessing. There on the cross, he would say, it's finished. And he didn't say it before then. But it all began that fateful day with the triumphal entry. Jesus has just finished raising Lazarus from the dead, something unheard of at this time. He was at the very height of his popularity. Things looked great for Jesus and his disciples. You can read about this entrance into the holy city in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and they found a colt outside in the street, tied it tied in a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. The same things that were said 
at Jesus' first arrival on a hill outside Bethlehem, sung by the angels, Hosanna in the highest, is now being said at his final arrival into Jerusalem. Things didn't change in three years. Luke's account goes into briefly a little more detail. He says, when he, Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And that's exactly what happened. Think about it. The Jews didn't and many don't proclaim Jesus as the Savior. But as Christians, we do. Right? First Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the stones Jesus talked about. Worshippers who offer spiritual sacrifices like we just did preceding this message. This all happened at the time of Passover. Passover was a time of great electricity. You could feel it in the air. Jerusalem would swell to over 2 million people during the Passover. They would come from every direction. And the blood of thousands of lambs would pour off the altar and flow out of the temple into the brook of Kidron. That brook would run red with blood. It was that brook that Jesus crossed to get into Gethsemane. It was a reminder and a shadow of what he was going to do in shedding his own blood. The blood of lambs would pour into that brook. It was the holiest time of atonement for the entire nation of Israel. The day of atonement. The day God said sin is going to get dealt with today. And everybody's sin was forgiven for another year. So it was a time of great excitement and celebration and even worship. And Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. You know, that scene was a fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. There are certain prophecies in the Old Testament that point ahead to God's promised Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. Zechariah says this, speaking about God's Savior, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Even at the end, Jesus is fulfilling all the prophecies that Scripture held about what the Messiah would do. You know, to us today, a donkey kind of seems like a, a lowly animal, huh? I mean, you don't really expect that's how he would enter Jerusalem, but you know, nobody expected the way he would enter the world in Bethlehem either. To us in the Western world, a donkey seems like a lowly animal. But in ancient times, kings and royalty would ride horses when they came into another kingdom to conquer that kingdom or to conquer that nation. But if they were coming in peace, they always rode on a donkey. Jesus didn't come that day as a conquering king. He came that day as the prince of peace. Revelation tells us that there will come a day, though, when Jesus enters on a horse. He'll be a king ready to conquer, and it's going to be awesome. Listen to what John the Revelator said. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse 
whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jerusalem, as well as all of Israel, was being occupied by Rome at this moment. I thought about that and I thought, you know, these, these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, they must have had quite a laugh at Jesus' expense. They must have had quite a laugh at this Hebrew parade. The Romans knew how to throw a parade, a parade of triumph. When Roman centurions and soldiers would conquer an enemy army, when they would conquer 5,000 enemy soldiers, that centurion would earn a Roman victory parade. And it was filled with pomp and pageantry. And there was music in the crowds. You couldn't see the ends of them. And then they see Jesus' parade. You know what they didn't realize? They didn't realize that 50 days later, Jesus would conquer 5,000 hearts in one day on the day of Pentecost. And you know, among the people in the crowd that day, I think there were predominantly three groups of people. I think there were the Jews and the religious leaders who lived in and around Jerusalem. I think the crowds that had come from all over Israel for the Passover were in the crowd. And I think those who had just seen Lazarus raised from the dead were there too. Now again, try to inject yourself into this scene. Try to imagine what it must have felt like and sounded like and smelled like. Quickly, the scene begins to build. First, there's a small group that gather alongside the road leading into the city. And then more and more people begin to arrive. Finally, a crowd and then a multitude are lining the roads. This would be Jesus' appointment with destiny. This was the time appointed before the foundations of the world were ever laid. Countless Passovers and millions of Passover lambs had pointed ahead to this Passover. That's why in the upper room, Jesus said to his disciples, I have longed to eat this Passover with you. No longer would the world look forward to Passover, wondering how God was going to save humanity. After this Passover, we look back toward this Passover to see how God did save humanity. And as Jesus approaches the the holy city, it says people shout in unison, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If I was God, I would have stopped the story then, right there. Less than one week later, many who were in that that absolutely same crowd who blessed him would curse him. They would shout, kill him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, spare Barabbas, but kill Jesus. How tragic is that? On Palm Sunday, they're shouting, Hosanna. And on Good Friday, they're shouting, crucify him. It makes you ask yourself, what happened? Why did those people turn on Jesus so easily, so angrily, and so quickly? That reason is, and that question is important for us here today. 
Because the people in the crowd that I just read from were people just like you and I. Every bit as weak, every bit as timid, every bit as selfish, having the same attitudes and weaknesses and self-centeredness that they did. We can turn on Jesus as fast as they did. One of the clues about their intentions can be found in what they were shouting. Hosanna. That means save now. They were quoting Psalm 118. Again, a messianic psalm. What that simply means is David, led by the Holy Spirit, gave glimpses of what God's Savior of the world would do and say and look like. And this, is, this event was prophesied long before Jesus was ever born. These people are tired of the bondage and tyranny of Roman occupation. They hoped that Jesus will be their deliverer sent to them by God. They thought he would certainly summons the heavenly host, the angels and the seraphim and the cherubims, you know, those fat babies with wings. He thought they would all come at his bequest. They hoped that he would sound the call of arms and heaven would give victory to Israel and free them from the bondage of Rome. They didn't realize that Jesus wanted to conquer hearts, not nations. He wanted willing servants, not defeated slaves. These people were willing to use Jesus to get what they wanted from him. Sound familiar? They would use him, but not love him. They would flatter him, but not follow him. And when he disappointed them, they rebelled and they turned on him, just like people do today. Just like you and I do. Maybe in smaller ways, but we do still today. Others in the crowd were simply looking for, I think, a little bit of entertainment. I really do. I think those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead came looking for a miracle worker. They wanted more miracles. They wanted more thrills and chills and excitement. They missed the whole point of Jesus' miracles. Listen, Miracles in Jesus' day are just like miracles in our day. They aren't a reward for a job well done. They aren't a sign of God's endorsement of a person or a ministry. They aren't evidence of somebody being really holy. Miracles are given to create belief and faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus at the end of his life said, If you don't believe me, at least believe the miracles. At least believe the miracles that I performed. You know, we're all at different stages of our spiritual trek, our spiritual journey. Some people are so far from Christ that they can't hardly even see the beginning. Other people have walked with Jesus for longer than most of us have been alive. But whatever place you're at on your spiritual journey, whether you're far from God or you're close to God, God will move heaven and earth to reveal himself to you. And he'll even do miracles if that's what it takes. But mostly, I think the people just got caught up in public pressure and and peer pressure and public opinion. They were kind of swept up with the crowd. So when the crowd shouted praises, they would praise. And when the crowd shouted curses, they would curse. Either afraid of what people would think of them, just like today, or simply swept along by the crowd or the culture. At any rate, on this day, Irrespective of what's going to happen the following weekend, on this day, the crowd is full of hope and joy and worship. Men are spreading their cloaks across the road. 
Women are laying down palm branches and olive branches along the road. Children are throwing flowers across the path ahead of Jesus. And all this is happening. And if you looked at it, you would see simply Jesus on a colt. And that colt plods ahead one step at a time. Remember, he's never been ridden. And this little colt is struggling under the unaccustomed weight that he was carrying. But Jesus also struggles with the weight he's carrying. And the closer Jesus comes to the holy city, the heavier the weight becomes. He is so near Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is so far from him. And I think the pain of that thought was almost unbearable to Jesus. That what might have started out as a joyous journey got sadder and sadder the closer he got. Jesus knew what was happening. In coming, he forces the hands of the religious leaders. After such a public act, acts of worship and, and, and adoration and, and, and crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the leaders would have to make a public vote. A public act would require a public vote. They would have to either confess Jesus or curse him. They would have to accept him or reject him. The same choice every person of every generation has to make. That's why Jesus said, listen, there is no net neutrality here. You're either all for me or you're not for me. You're either for me or you're against me. Now the choice is yours. But as all this religious activity and celebration and excitement is happening, the religious leaders' hearts were not filled with joy. They were filled with judgment. How stubborn of these Pharisees to stand silent while being surrounded by such acts of worship. And how tragic. So much education and yet so little understanding. So much learning and so little life. And Luke tells us, while the crowd was rejoicing, Jesus was weeping. How long or how hard he cried, we're not told. Not much is said about those tears, but I want to tell you something. In those tears, there is an eternity of grief. From eternity past, Jesus has known that Satan would tempt, mankind would fall, people would sin, and he would die. And for all eternity past, he's known the name and the face of every person of every generation who would reject him. So while he was bringing peace and joy and hope and happiness and and salvation to the world, he was also confronted with the fact that many would reject him. And so while the crowd rejoices and laughs, Jesus weeps. And who can blame him? He's going to his death, a horrible, excruciating death. And he knows the shame and the pain will become almost unbearable. He knows that the cloaks of honor today will be replaced with cloaks of dishonor in just a few days. He knows the blessings will turn into curses. He knows that hands of praise will become fists of rage. But knowing all this, Jesus isn't weeping for himself. He's weeping for Jerusalem. And I know that because of what Luke tells us when he says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it 
And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but is now hidden from your eyes. You know, Jesus weeps still today. There are people in the turmoil that Taps talked about. And he would say, if you only knew what would bring you peace. And Jesus is weeping for people today who, just like the people in the story we're reading about today, start well but end poorly. And that applies to a lot of people. Paul told Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, our times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Jesus himself, talking about the end of the age, said, because of the increase of wicked, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus himself said most people who start well aren't going to end well. So that leads us to the the next question. Why do so many people not finish the course when it comes to faith and Christianity? Well, I think some people just get distracted. I don't think they set out to end poorly. I think they just get distracted. You're bored or you're lonely or you're facing a crisis in your life and so you cry out to God. You come to church and all of a sudden you start to feel new feelings, a little glimmer of hope. You start thinking new thoughts and you're moved by God's kindness. And the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And so you cross that line of faith and you become a Christian. And after a while, though, those new ways of thinking and feeling become old ways. They become common and familiar. And so instead of being wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, you become half-hearted in your devotion. And then the distractions come. There are careers to build, yards to mow, TV programs to watch, beds to lay in, beaches to lay on, trips to take, sports to play, hobbies to enjoy. And through neglect and apathy over time, you simply quit. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. You know what happens when you drift? You drift because you're not paying attention. You don't have a desire to drift away, to get far from God. You just don't take the diligence to make sure you stay close to Him. Neglect, you're unaware, it goes unnoticed that you drift. Other people, I think, over time just get numb. They start out with such good intentions. They're so excited about what God has done for them. And they feel so good when they do something for God. But after a while, they forget why they do what they do or who they do it for. It's no longer for Jesus. It simply becomes a habit or a routine or a lifestyle. And pretty soon... Listen to this. Pretty soon, the way they live their Christian life destroys the work of Christ in their life. The way they live their Christian life. When grace stops being amazing, and it becomes, I'm sorry, and it becomes hard and routine, And the way we live, our Christian life ends up destroying the work of Christ in us. Why I'm so emotional about that. That's why it's important to nurture and protect your relationship with Jesus. The Bible says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And and you can come to places like this and there's other people that lead us in worship and teach us. and, And that builds up our faith. But we've got a responsibility too. 
And then I think simply other people simply get disappointed or discouraged in life. Things haven't gone the way you expected, dreamed, or hoped they would. You have an unhappy marriage, a difficult child, a dead-end job, a serious illness. And so your heart gets broken. And then it gets hardened. The Bible says hope deferred makes a heart sick. And so your heart gets sick. And, and disappointment turns into discouragement. And discouragement turns into anger. Anger at God. How could you not come through for me? How could you let this happen to me? After all I've done for you, you let me down. And so to punish him, you stop serving him. Or worse yet, to punish God, you say, I'm no longer going to believe in you. I've heard it a thousand times. And I want to tell you today, whether you're distracted, numb, disappointed, or discouraged... Today can be your day of visitation. Things can be different. Even if things don't get better, they can be different. Because we know what will bring us peace, because we know who the Prince of Peace is. If Jesus came today like he did that day in Jerusalem, would he be weeping or rejoicing? If he saw you alongside the road, would he be weeping or rejoicing? Would he find a friend, an enemy, Or a stranger? Would he be being blessed or being cursed? Because if we are going to be different than the people we read about in today's story, there are certain decisions that need to be made. There are certain specific commitments that need to make, we need to make, and there are specific things we need to do. I'll try to blast through these real fast. We're all at different places, as I said, in our spiritual journey. And some of you may be saying, you know, I don't get this Christianity thing. I don't know why some people raise their hands. I don't know why people come in here and they they seem like they like each other and they smile a lot. And I know they're having problems in their life, but are they for real? It may seem like a fairy tale to you. But countless millions of people over countless generations have said it's not a lie. It is the truth. It's the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to live. If you're a Christian today, decide that today you will be saturated in the Word of God, in Scripture, in the Bible. The Bible must be the source of our faith and our beliefs, our moral compass, our code of conduct, the very foundation we build our lives on. What I mean by that is this isn't just a book written by some guys, ancient guys thousands of years ago. This is God's expression to us about his will for our lives. We have got to be a people devoted to the Bible. Not just devoted to reading it. Not just devoted to learning it. Not even devoted to just believing it. But devoted to living it in our day-to-day lives. In how we treat other people. In how we speak about one another. In how we respond when somebody wrongs us. In how we care for the needy. In how we react when somebody offends us. We're told the church in Acts devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Bereans were of much more noble character because they searched the scriptures looking for God's truth. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's how we don't become part of the group that started so well and ended so poorly. Resolve today that whenever God's word is taught, you will be here to hear it. 
And you'll leave here to apply it. Resolve today to receive scriptural teaching with the humility that says, this message applies to me. Because most of Rod's messages, I think to myself, I know who that applies to, and it's not me. Resolve that you will apply the Word of God in your life. And that doesn't mean you over-apply it, resulting in guilt. Or you under-apply it, resulting in ignoring it or disregarding it. But let the Holy Spirit teach you how to apply God's Word in your life. That's one way you can keep from ending poorly. The second way is guard the way you live. Solomon, we just finished the series out of Proverbs. Wisest man who ever lived. In in Proverbs chapter 4, four verses, rapid fire succession, he says, guard. Guard your heart. Guard your mouth. Guard your eyes. Guard your feet. Guard your heart, what you allow yourself to think and feel. Guard your mouth, what you allow yourself to say. Guard your eyes, where you look and how you feel when you see what you see. And guard your feet, where you go and what you do. Four verses, rapid fire succession. The third thing to do to make sure you're not like the crowd leading into the holy city that day is work toward becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus. If you're not even a Christian yet, then work toward getting to that point where you can raise the white flag of surrender over your life, cross the line of faith and said, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to try. I'm going to see if Jesus is really who he said he was. But for the rest of the people here who, who, who have already crossed that line of faith, Solomon told us in, in Song of Solomon's chapter 2, little foxes ruin the vineyards. People stumble over pebbles. They don't stumble over boulders. We all make a hundred seemingly insignificant choices each and every day. Every one of those choices either builds our character or it erodes our character. Full Full devotion to God means that you make a decision, I will honor God above all else. I'll honor God whether my decision agrees with it, whether my desires want it, whether it's convenient or comfortable. Full devotion means you honor God above all else. And when you do that, most of the decisions of life are already made. God already made those decisions in Scripture. So when you have a decision to make, start there. But I want to promise you something. If you honor God in the small, everyday issues of life, then God will honor you for a lifetime. If you honor God, not in the big events of life, and not big decisions, and not the big crises, certainly do that, but in those small, seemingly insignificant decisions you make in everyday life. If you honor God with your life, God will honor you for a lifetime. And then I want to leave you with one last admonition. Commit yourself to the local church. Commit yourself to the local church. In almost 40 years of ministry, not one time have I ever seen anyone separate themselves from the local church and flourish spiritually over the long haul. Even the ones that started well ended poorly. Simply decide to love one another. That's what the New Testament was pretty much written for, to teach us how to get along with each other. Jerusalem, the holy city, Jesus' entrance that day, Known as the triumphal entry was also a tragic entry.
It was Jesus' final appeal before his death. And for many, it was tragic because they openly rejected his appeal. Not only the appeal for peace on earth, but peace with God. Or they ignored it. Or they rationalized it away. And unless they changed, their lives and their death were tragic. Because they faced a Christless eternity. Separation from God. Every time Jesus enters a person's heart, it's a triumphal entry. All of heaven rejoices. But the ultimate triumphal entry will come someday when Jesus returns to claim his church, a bride without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. And the question that you and I have to answer today is, are we going to be like the people along that, alongside that road to Jerusalem that day so long ago? Are we going to sing his praises on Sunday and ignore or reject him on Friday? Are we going to miss the appointed time of our visitation from God? That day can be today. The day we discover what will bring us peace because we finally remember who will bring us peace. So I know there are people here that might need to accept Jesus for the very first time today. You can do that right where you're seated. If you're not ready, come back next week. You'll hear the gospel message again. But others of us have joined God's family long ago. Maybe you started well, but maybe you're not doing so well right now. You might be distracted. You might be numb. You might be disappointed or discouraged. Whether you've never accepted Christ or you've accepted, accepted Him long ago, either way, we're all a decision away from our day of visitation. So let's pray for that. Father, it's so easy to forget that starting well doesn't really mean much in life. It's how we finish. And I pray, God, that each of us, each of us would reclaim the wonder and the amazement of grace, that grace would be amazing again. I pray, God, seeing what you did that first time, that first entrance into the world outside of Bethlehem, and then the the entrance into Jerusalem, and then we hear about the future entrance back into the world, I pray, God, that that would inspire us to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. We would make the decisions and follow through with those decisions to do what it takes to devote ourselves to to Scripture, to devote ourselves to you, to to devote ourselves to each other as, as your bride and church. God, please, I pray that this would be a day of visitation for all of us wherever we're at. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.